Who's tired of bad news? Don't you just want something that makes you smile, laugh, or feel good? Whether you start your day with this podcast or listen when you need a mood boost, your daily chocolate is a quick, calorie-free way to feel good. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear funny stories, clean jokes, and interviews with inspirational people. Your host, Patty Deutsch, is bound and determined to counterbalance all the negativity that's out there today. Just give yourself a moment to indulge in these bite-sized stories. It'll be good for you. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and count myself to be very fortunate to have been able to experience all of the parklands that we have uh, in Northern California, from national parks to regional parks to just open space. And fortunately, my family was very outdoorsy, so I got to experience a lot of different ones uh, and not just California. But I realized that that's not the case for a lot of folks. Even in the Bay Area, I used to work with children who uh, their homes might have been a mile or so from the Bay itself, and they had never been to the water. We have a lot of just concrete playgrounds. But I think you know, during the pandemic, we certainly saw people experiencing nature and getting outdoors more. Uh, there wasn't much that they could do, right? They couldn't travel. They couldn't be inside with folks. They had to be outside social distancing. And so there's been a renewed interest. That said, this coming Thursday is National Park Service Founders Day. And in honor of that, I thought I would speak to Linus Yukel, who is the engine behind the John Muir Land Trust, uh, an organization here in the Bay Area that has uh, preserved more than, well, almost 4,000 acres and, and still going strong of open space for public recreation and sometimes just uh, for preservation. I've had the privilege of working with Linus uh, for many years and most recently on a project to preserve what's called Pacheco Marsh uh, here in Contra Costa County. So I thought, what a perfect time to have a conversation about what conservation actually means. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Linus, thank you so much for taking time uh, to join me on your Daily Chocolate. I'm so happy to have you here today. Likewise. Thank you, Patty. Thanks for the opportunity to participate. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and in, in this format, oh. really interesting and that much more opportunity to do so. Appreciate it. Yeah. You obviously are a master of conservation in the Bay Area, and what you do with the John Muir Land Trust is just amazing. And I think people would sort of be surprised because the Bay Area, we've got so much open space, or it appears to be. So why why is what you're doing so important? Well, first, let me thank you for the compliment, the bouquet of flowers. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really necessarily... Um, see myself that way. And I, I hope others don't either, because I think uh, it's a very collaborative um, enterprise to to do this work. There's no one unique individual that can rise to that kind of concept. I think we are named, as we've talked about, for that kind of iconic leadership in John Muir. But in fact, it's really up to all of us. And I'm just part of a team that's trying to get that done. So why do we do what we do? And as much as there's um, a lot of open space in the Bay Area. We are blessed with a lot of uh, natural area that's been preserved. Specifically, are the criteria as to why we we preserve natural areas goes beyond, for instance, just park use. For instance, we we don't call what we ultimately protect permanently. Permanently protect runs with the deed forever, as necessarily a park. It's not just for people, although we 
always mm. want to bring that paradigm to bear that there's public access from uh, dawn to dusk. And that's a really important aspect of why we do it. It's public recreation, but it's also meant to be in balance with really specific criteria around biodiversity and all the measurables as to what we're preserving on behalf of wildlife, fresh water, clean water, fresh air, uh, both of them fresh, both of them clean. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. With that said, uh, there's a lot of different elements that really impact us all over and above public recreation. So as, as the Bay Area grows, and it inevitably does, uh, as it inevitably does, it's that much more important to provide these kinds of uh, balance points that literally sustain life for all of us yeah. in the area. Yeah. So I, I think you've preserved, what, 3,500 acres? Yeah, we're coming up on 4,000. Yeah, we tend to sort of use that round number and then it kind of sticks in the in the marketing for a while. And, and we're not afraid of marketing because we have to get the word out. As I say, it's a very collaborative uh, process. So we try and involve as many people as possible and, you know, message that as something everybody can be involved with. But yeah, it's, uh, I think we're coming up on four and 4,000 and we live in one of the most expensive, competitive real estate markets in the world. So each project is unique and important mm. and, and in its way, wonderful work to undertake, but also challenging, competitive, and difficult to um, actually accomplish. So, Yeah, talk about that a little. I think people think, oh, you know, when somebody dies, they donate the land to you and there you go, John Muir Land Trust. But there's there's a whole lot more <laughs> involved in that. Yeah. What's I, the process like? Well, it's it's very different than that, especially. <laughs> <laughs> and there are those, and even even myself, uh, you know, there are some of us. I guess cling to the notion that you know somebody's going to just kind of come up the stairs and say, "Here's some some wonderful land, and we'd like you to have it." It occasionally happens, but typically families and it is typically a family asset we're we're preserving ranch land and so forth some of the last remaining ranch land in many cases but other kinds of natural area but they may be um you know dealing with that family asset and land rich as it were but very interested in being made whole for the the valuation of that asset and the land trust job my job is really to take their position and say okay let us do the diligence about how the land might be of value to us according to those criteria that we bring to bear and then it always starts with an objective appraisal so that we're very careful to understand what the the highest and best use valuation is, not the conservation value. The attorneys general have um, decided long ago that conservation is not a highest and best use value as to the appraisal. So we're talking about what would it be worth should it be developed to its maximum potential? And we'll pay up to and including 100% of that objective appraised value to the family. Now, if, wow. Yeah, then that's that's, you know, so the criteria alignment as to its conservation values, the highest and best use valuation relative to the market. And then as that all kind of comes together with a willing seller, 
you know, we're, we're not an advocacy organization. We don't beat up on people's projects before permitting. We don't enterprise in the background to bring any kind of pressure to an owner that we think has a property that's really worth saving. It's a very confidential and quiet conversation, typically between myself and the owner about should this be something they wish to do, we would be interested and uh, this is how it works. So always working with a willing seller, uh, we can pay up to and including that price in order to protect their interests, but also to protect the public. Because as we use philanthropic dollars and or occasionally state agency funds or even federal funds in some cases, we can't pay more than what that that valuation says we can to sort of bring sort of that zero balance. um, Yeah protection to all parties. And then there's there's lots of environmental impact reports and hoops that you have to jump through, I would imagine, from a county standpoint and the state government. And if somebody comes to you and says, uh, John Muir Land Trust, we've got 100 acres. Mm-hmm. We'd like to see what you can do with it. And that's on January 1st. How long does it typically take for you to take position, possession of that land? Um, that's a great question. And it, and it, it can be a sort of a, a range of outcomes, but we typically take two different positions on that. One is that first we have to appraise it so that to get to that agreement, right. uh, the owner is going to want to know, okay, well, what's it, what's it going to be worth if, if, right. if it's not a donation? And again, that's very, very seldom Rare. that it is. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you were more often. Put it out there, though. <laughs> exactly right. It's, it's the karma of that, the good vibe. You know, I, I am happy to entertain that outcome. But yeah, because otherwise it's me and a team of people going door to door at some level. But yeah. with that yeah. said, um, <laughs> once we have that secured, and, it, and again, I'll comment again about the appraisal process. We have a very short list of very qualified appraisers. It, and I can argue that number to the Department of General Services. It's rock solid because there is an art and a science to appraising property. And when you're doing open space, it's that much more complex. This is not just residential real estate. So we really are very careful in that process. It's a very deep narrative as to all of the comparables and why why the number is what it is. So with that said, um, we then will move to put the property in contract uh, and some of the uh, sort of agreeable issues within that have to do with our own diligence. Uh, So there's some amount of timing that will will bring to bear in in the process as a consideration in the land trust of doing a phase one, uh, doing all of the resource area uh, reporting on what is really on the property, really looking at, um, you know, whether there's clear title, all of, all of the sort of the diligence that we're charged with doing to make sure that what we purchase and protect forever yeah. for the public is what we should be protecting that it's right. you know it's a clean property it's 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 um, something that isn't going to be clouded title whatever yeah, without conflict without yeah. conflict exactly uh, yeah. good way of putting it and so that is a that can be a I'd like to say it's a, a quicker process but typically that'll be about a six month process and right. then and then we'll we'll typically exercise. Uh, uh, sort of an all-in uh, earnest money once we've been able to clear that there's no hazardous material and so forth. And uh, then it's typically a fundraising process from yeah. there on out. And depending on where we are with with lead, what we'll, we'll describe as lead gifts, 
and I'll go to work on that even in advance of having a property in contract. We can then accelerate. Typically, will allow, and I know this sounds like a long time, but typically will allow two years to bring a property entirely to close. Wow. Right. And that's, you know, for an owner that's in a real hurry, that can be kind of a, you know, a pause, as it were. It's like, really, is it going to take me that long to sell it? But it, it again, goes to the willing seller perspective on this. If somebody is simply wanting to market property, they can always go out to the MLS and just market land. Yeah. And if they're, if they're getting spec values and so forth, we may not be able to compete. But if they're a willing seller that's really interested in seeing that property permanently you know, preserved and not developed, and, and ultimately they're the end point in terms of that family legacy and the way that land's going to work as it has for millions of years going into the future, that's an agreeable amount of timing. And again, we're in, we're all in. On, yeah. on that on that agreement. It's just we want the time to be able to go to the public and raise funds and make people aware of this asset that we're bringing to bear to that community benefit. So it's a it's a yeah it's a virtuous process. It's not just us um, slow walking something or sandbagging right. something. What's the long term goal? Uh, do you want to eventually have ten thousand acres or? Um, are you happy with what you have and you just want to be good stewards of it? What does John Muir Land Trust see down the line? Yeah, great question. Again, uh, we don't measure it so much in our goal is to have some X number of acres. Although we are proactive, we're a goals-oriented organization. We pride ourselves on sort of being doers. You know, everybody in the organization is a doer. We're not sort mm-hmm. of theorizing around a lot of this. So we do want to move projects forward. But what lay behind that typically is more of a values proposition than simply a goals. So it's, there's an intrinsic mission related to that extrinsic um, uh, outcome. And so if we're just measuring acres, you can buy a lot of acres and not have them really add up to something that's as meaningful as you know, why. Why these acres and what does mm. it address long term and how does it preserve wildlife and water and air and all of the things that we're, we're measuring. So the quality of the conservation property is ultimately more important than simply the number of acres. And again, in the Bay Area, the East Bay specifically, we see ourselves as sort of the big middle. There's the East Bay Regional Park District, which we work with very closely sometimes. Uh, there's the the water company at Mud that we work with, or Contra Costa Water. There's all sorts of large agencies that are land-holding agencies that we work with. But we typically are dealing with projects that are outside of their purview, outside of their master plan, and very important conservation properties that would otherwise not be addressed. So that's another criteria. It's like, what are the things that wouldn't happen should a public agency not be able to become involved or, or cities, for instance, there's a lot of issues within city jurisdictions that folks are very interested in, but cities are not well equipped to simply buy and hold its steward land, steward land for forever. It's not their primary uh, purpose. So we'll, we'll do projects that were, are within city jurisdictions that otherwise wouldn't happen. And again, always measuring the more the intrinsic values proposition has to do with all of those conservation criteria. But also, you know, it's not to say that we're, we're deaf to public support. I mean, if, if there's property, it might just be like 100 acres that isn't contiguous to some other larger, let's say, park district property or something that would otherwise 
go by the wayside, but the public really wants to see it preserved. We have yeah. we have a an ear to that as well. How do we do this together to that sort of public benefit as part of our purpose? Got it. So John Muir didn't actually found your organization, but he did. He was one of the founders of the National Park Service, right? And Sierra Club. And and I know that you have helped uh, preserve the area, the land around his historic home, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Wanda in particular. Mm-hmm. So what what lessons do you take from John Muir that are still relevant today? I think the very thing that we were talking about in sort of the the values proposition, I mean, Muir was an early conservation leader and set a tone as to the importance of conservation outcomes that did lead to the National Park Service and and other kinds of efforts and initiatives toward people's awareness of conservation values. And in that sense, uh, I think we still follow Muir's lead in addressing why is it important. Mm-hmm. So in as much as he was and, and is an iconic figure in that regard. We also started out early days in preserving some of the properties that were right around his his homestead with with uh, Strensel family and so forth, and including Mount Wanda, as you mentioned, at West Hills Farm, and then Franklin Ridge, all the way out to the Hercules boundary and then down to the intermodal transport to the to the to the bay. So you know the which are all lands that he walked that, you know, his saunters were across those, those hills. So there is a a legacy proposition there, but there's also all of the the studies in the wildlife that he was observing, including most specifically the botany. I mean, he was such a great botanist to be preserving in perpetuity going forward. So I think the spirit of Muir really informs us. And also the idea that with the national parks, as you point out, its establishment is important. It was important, but it's also the the continuum of it that makes all the difference. So we're all carrying the baton, right? And we're all yeah. taking it from the last generation. It did so much great work. You know, we could take the whole program talking about all the wonderful accomplishments <laughs> that people have undertaken to uh, bring to fruition that we all enjoy locally, statewide, nationally. It's our It's our job to then take it preserve it, do a little bit more as best we can, and hand it off to the next generation. Muir was, in some ways, part of that continuum. He also initiated a new kind of continuum, enhanced awareness. And uh, it's our job to keep it going. We're all sort of... I love it. Yeah, so do I. That part of it is when you're grinding away on some project, you know, <laughs> you're down in the trenches with it and you're down there with a lot of other people, including the public. It's like, how do we get this done? Yeah. Um, looking up and recognizing us, like, oh, the horizon is that next generation and, and right. the wind in our sails really come from those generations that came before us that are encouraging us to, to keep that going. Yeah. And I hadn't really uh, anticipated talking about this, but you you don't just preserve the land, you enable the next generation to appreciate it. And things like the app that you established mm-hmm. on Mount Wanda that enables students as they're walking to learn about this oak tree here or the, these railroad tracks here and you know the history of the area 
uh, in which they're walking and to, to appreciate the outdoors and nature and botany and all those things that John Muir was a fan of. That's exactly right. It's, it's very much about next gen and how do we inflect towards new communications and technologies that, that folks connect with. And you said it very well, Patty. It's, it, you even mentioned the railroad tracks and so forth. I mean, land is a lens through which we see our entire history. You, know, you can't live without it, right? And it's used in right. so many different ways. And people being able to stand on a property that's permanently protected, that we actually have the responsibility of taking care of forever and understanding how it relates to a wide range of historical perspectives, as well as the biotics and so forth, is is really a, a wonderful sort of living museum, as well as a yeah. hope for the future. What is yeah. this portend going forward? And how do we get next gen out there, whether it's a national park setting or Pacheco Marsh, which is going to come online yeah. with, you know, and you were very involved with that very much. I'm so excited about yeah, that. It's yeah, it's a fantastic <laughs> property. And the idea of being able to bring kids down to saltwater marsh that wasn't functional, but now is restored and learning about what the interactivity of, of that marsh is to where we live and how it, how it works with the bay, something that we all own in a sense. If you live in the Bay Area, yeah. it's it's something we all relate to. And yet so many kids have not even been to the Bay. So how right. do you how do you get folks out there? How do you get kids and families out and understanding where they live, why it's important, and how they can be involved with its permanent protection? Yeah. So August 25th is actually National Park Service Founders Day. Interesting. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> how, how would you suggest folks celebrate that? Well, uh, you know, we have a new superintendent of the National Park Service, Kaylin Berry, huh. in the East Bay. And there's um, all of the national historic sites throughout the East Bay. Each and every one of them are, are worth a visit uh, multiple times. And again, with a new uh, superintendent, uh, Tom Leatherman moved to uh, Hawaii to oversee yeah. Pearl Harbor and Kaylin Berry came in and she's wonderful. Great interactivity with her right off the bat. So there's, but just to be very local, there's the John Muir National Historic Site, which is very local to where um, John Muir Land Trust was founded. Now we cover a much larger footprint, obviously the East Bay writ large, but yeah. um, I think that's a great place to start is the National Historic Sites yeah. because You'll have the natural area experience, also the access to sort of the story and the arc of history of, of national parks and, and why they're so important and meaningful. Perfect. Love it. So I know you've got some land acquisition that you're in the midst of and you're raising funds. And I just want to give you an opportunity to tell people a little bit about um, that land purchase and what you're still looking to do by the end of the year. By the end of the year. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for putting a, a sort of a time limit on it <laughs> because there's a lot in the pipeline. But uh, with that said, right now, I think the most public facing project that we're involved with is uh, Harvey Ranch over in uh, the Moraga Hills, which connects to uh, 15,000 acres of the upper San Leandro watershed. So Harvey Ranch, we, we call it a gateway to nature because it's it's right on the boundary of a beautiful St. Mary's College of California campus, contiguous to that, and then straight south to the 15,000 acres of the Upper San Leandro. 
and also ultimately will connect to the 505 acres of painted rock, which we're also responsible to be preserving downtown Reem. So, which also connects to the Lafayette Reservoir, which uh, enjoys 1.2 million visitors per year. So what we're setting up is this um, connected trail system that all ultimately flows right through Harvey Ranch, which is sort of the only way to get out to what I'm talking about to the south at altitude. There are other places to enter, but you're looking at a 2,000 plus vertical climb, steep trails. Oof. Yeah, this is a very uh, sort of humane way, if a better way, maybe it's probably a better way of describing that, but it, at least for my legs and my lungs, it's a, it's a nice walk out to, uh, you know, something that's already at altitude for incredible views and incredible habitat, large mammals, mountain lion, bobcat, badger, uh, you know, coyote, all of that, but also the raptors and it's all of the, uh, you know, designated area for permanent protection of uh, many uh, listed and endangered species, but also this wonderful place for people to be able to just yeah. walk and enjoy those views and the beautiful landscape. And also a wonderful opportunity to be just unusual, to be preserving property right on the border of an esteemed college campus and the yeah. interactivity of students with with environmental science and teaching projects and so forth for years to come. We're really looking forward to that partnership as well. Fantastic. And you're trying to raise what oh, by the end of the year? Yes, there's that. That's it's the money. <laughs> uh, as we talked just a, about. Just a nudge as there. As we talked yeah. about earlier. Yeah. This is your opportunity. I just, I just always on. want to make, yeah. say, make sure that people understand our mission is not to raise money. Our mission is to really protect these, these properties that benefit all of us, yeah. benefit biodiversity, and, and really return like, a, you know, venture scale kinds of yeah. outcomes, just really large uh, leveraged outcomes. With that said, the project is a $4 million project. We're really doing very well. We've had some wonderfully generous lead gifts, and I think we'll close at the end of 2022. And I think we're probably fundraising to a gap in the fall of about a million dollars. So we're already awesome. three million in, and and yeah, and very again, can't say thank you enough to all the folks that have been so generous on behalf of that project from throughout the Bay Area too. As I just mentioned, yeah. that's not just local; it's we've seen it regionally um, invested. Well, I so appreciate your time, and what I always try to do is end with kind of rapid fire questions. Oh, and uh, so the first thing that comes to mind, it can be short and pithy if you want, but I know you, Linus. Nobody's <laughs> ever described me as pithy or short. Uh, I feel like I'm about to do a Rorschach or something. This is <laughs> based on what we were just talking about. What, uh, with all the fundraising that you've done, what is the best yes you've ever gotten? A million dollar donor from a, a million dollar donation from a, a private donor from a family as a as an anonymous lead gift, just remarkably wow. generous and unexpected. Totally, or just and yeah. with all of the we don't want to be known for it or anything. We just simply want to endorse and support the work, and we really, really just love the outcomes that we're seeing. And it was just such a such a boost for a project, but also. Just such a vote of confidence in all the work that everybody's been doing together. Those are the best. Okay. What is your favorite national park? Hmm. It's not actually a national park, but I've actually, truly, 
grown very fond of the John Green National Historic Site. <laughs> it's just, I've, I've, you know, we've, we've bonded in a way that I would have never expected. You know, it's Highway 4 roaring by and so forth. But there is something, there's, you know, I channel sometimes the spiritual perspectives that John Muir had in his work and sometimes the writings and the notion that he sat there in his, in his, in and scribbled those words and an almost ecstatic kind of energy about nature. There's something really almost sacred about that place in that regard. As far as open space, yeah. I mean, I've been to so many national parks. Badlands actually is really, there's some, you know, I would say that strangely. Okay. And just some of the grasslands in, in South Dakota and so forth, incredible. Very different. Okay. All right. We've just come through, hopefully we've come through the pandemic. And a lot of people picked up new skills. Did you start anything new? I think, well, this is, this is not pithy, but I think I, <laughs> I keep trying to, based on what everybody's been through, I think, and I don't know that there's anybody that would agree with me, but I think I've picked up some new skills with respect to empathy and support no. for staff and oneself and others in general. I, you know, sometimes we get in the grind of our work and goals and just looking at it, seeing how people have struggled with this, you know, to yeah, just getting better at being kind. And we could use a lot more of that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No doubt. And so who actually inspires you? I'm sorry, I'm giving you a long pause here because I kind of choke up on it. That's okay. Uh, my daughter. Oh, yeah. She's really something. My wife and daughter together. But, you know, when you're parents of, of a child that's launching to college, and such a, a bright, intelligent, wonderful person who themselves is very committed to uh, helping others and so forth. To see them in the midst of all that we've been through launch and find their footing and be so committed to trying to make the world a better place. Well, clearly she had good parents. She made me a better parent. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. And because this is called your daily chocolate, I need to know what's your favorite chocolate? Oh, good question. Um, there is, I think it's a 73% Ghirardelli <laughs> that you can buy at Safeway, but they come, in, <laughs> they come in just those little packages and they're, they're just kind of an easy get up and go uh, yeah. <laughs> hit of dark chocolate. And that's, again, something that both my wife and daughter inspired me to. I was one of those kids that grew up eating milk chocolate in front of black and white TV. You know? <laughs> now they've got me eating dark chocolate. I was like, this is good. <laughs> and it's good for you. Exactly. I know. Exactly. Yeah. So, Well, Linus, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation. I can't believe that you did that um, to, to talk with me. And I'll make sure that we put uh, links in the show notes to John Muir Land Trust and any other sure. social media um, accounts that you want folks to be able to follow you on. So Great. Thank you, Patty. It's always a pleasure. I love speaking with you and being with you wherever we can and whenever we can. So uh, looking forward to more. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Linus. As you can tell, he's very passionate about what he does, and for good reason. We've got some beautiful landscapes here in the Bay Area and the importance of protecting them, not just for future generations, for but for current generations is obvious. So Thursday is National 
Park Service Founders Day, go out there and explore a park. If you're in the Bay Area, I would encourage you to check out the John Muir National Historic Site. Uh, as Linus said, it really is kind of a step into our past and, and to some wonderful history. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, share it with somebody else. Don't keep these smiles and inspiration to yourself. Be sure to join me next week when I've got Andrew Malcolm, who was for many years a foreign and national correspondent for the likes of New York Times, LA Times, and others, and uh, has, has just a really great perspective about exploring the United States. Join me then. Until then, have a great week.